Hi, this is Jade Taylor from Sci-Fi's The Magicians. I play Katie Orloff Diaz, and welcome to the Coffee Clash. Welcome, welcome to the Coffee Clash. Welcome to the Coffee Clash Crew, The Magicians episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we bring magic back into our lives with Episode 8, Home Improvement. Written by Jay Gard and Alex Raymond, and directed by Joshua Butler. IMDb is giving this an 8.4. The very brief synopsis is, Penny licks an egg, Alice is jealous of a flower. I feel like this season, more than all the other seasons, they were like, I don't know, just say something so we have something, but I don't want to give anything away. Alice is jealous of a flower? Yeah, that's not yeah, even But she really wasn't. Close. No, but you know, it'll get them thinking. <laughs> Although... That was the funniest moment of the episode. Penny licking an egg. You, Julia, want to get a lick on this egg? <laughs> that, Here was great. that was great. I love that. <laughs> um, there were some jokes, some comedy that did not land for me. And I felt at times like they were pushing that a bit too much. You know, this was going to be the funny episode. But there were moments like that. Yes. With Penny that I thought were great. Yeah, that was an instant gif. On the interwebs is Penny licking that egg. It's hilarious. <laughs> The Magicians is really good at being funny, being punny, and you know I love my puns, being pop culture funny. But this episode, and maybe there's been a few other ones this season where it felt a little forced. Um, this one, I think it may have been on purpose. It felt like a slapsticky kind of episode. In those moments, I think you're right with the stuff with the egg releasing pheromones. But there's other areas even too, like surprisingly fillery with some of the jokes that are flying back and forth between Margot and Fenn that I thought that was going to provide really great humor. And I don't know, that wasn't quite landing for me. The dramatic stuff was landing really well. Yeah. And I do think what The Magicians is doing a great job at this season is character development. Unfortunately, I think some of that maybe is causing the issues we're feeling with the plot, feeling really scattered, because they're taking the time to try to go through each character and what's going on with them, and that makes it feel like we're bouncing all over the place. But then this episode, there was something else troubling me that I couldn't quite put my finger on, and I think Den of Geek described it wonderfully. They said the magician has become the most elaborate online chain quest game ever. You know the sort. The town blacksmith wants a rare gem to upgrade your armor. But when you go to the local miner, he wants you to fetch 10 pelts in trade. And that requires you to dot, 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 etc. It's fun in its own way, but are we going too far down the rabbit hole now? It's entirely possible the magicians will tie these disparate threads together. But this middle part of the season is starting to feel less purposeful, even if there does end up being rock-solid intentions behind all the tangents. If you think about it, last episode showed this same feeling and theory in a microcosm of that one scene with Katie going from one tradesman to another to trade in one thing to get something else, to go to someone else, trade in one thing to get something else, to yes. finally go back to getting what she wanted. And maybe this is a personal problem. I don't even like games that make you do that. It gets too far down along the line. And I'm like, what about my main goal already? I'm sick of all this tangential bullshit. And that was really heightened here. And I think part of the problem too is they did it related to the monster quest. And that's an element that's felt like a through line keeping us steady even when we go a little bit off course throughout the season we keep coming back to the Elliot monster and the god hunt and even if it's only small pieces we're given something every episode keeps us focused to have that then go off on a tangent I think made it fall apart a little bit for me and it was related to 
a storyline from the books with the East River Dragon that I absolutely loved. And it just didn't seem to hold up as well. They didn't make it as much about the dragon. It was all about Poppy and and the pregnancy. When we initially realized that this New York dragon was going to be the East River Dragon, you yelled out audibly. (laughs) We had to pause because you were so loud I couldn't hear anything. And then as the episode went on, I saw you getting cut down emotionally. (laughs) And I assume, I haven't read the books, that this is completely different from the storyline that you really loved with the East River Dragon. I mean, right when Katie and the Love Lady discuss this dragon and they go away, you're like, oh, this is going to be a difficult one. Like You were so excited. (laughs) Yeah, and it's so hard to even talk about it because... It's connected to another storyline from the books that we got hinted at in this episode. And I'm thinking maybe they're going to put all the weight on that and some of the storyline transfer over there. The Magician's TV show has done that a lot. So I can't even bring up what happened or why I'm annoyed about it. All I can think is, oh, they're going there eventually. They tipped us off about that. However, I've kind of been saying that a lot this season and they're not pulling that stuff in. And there is so much good meat left. I hesitate to bring this topic up because I think the show has done a great job of doing its own thing and using the books as a starting off point. And I don't think they need to be the novels. Okay. But as a book reader, you know, there's certain things you always want to see from the book wind up there. There's major elements that you're excited to get to. There's a bunch that the show hasn't brought up. And I don't know if it's because they've decided to drop those. They're not worth it. Or because they know they're going that many more seasons and they're really spreading it out, which would be totally fine by me. Yeah, I don't mind that at all. I think that would be awesome. The problem I'm having, at the end of every episode, we're left with a cliffhanger that's really exciting, or almost every episode. And then they leave us hanging there to the point where I've forgotten some of them already. Yeah, this is where you're saying last time there's so many balls in the air, right? And part of what's challenging about a show is keeping enough questions dangling to have your audience interested, but also closing enough doors along the way that we feel satisfied. The Magician has always walked a fine line and done an amazing job of that. I think they're struggling with that this season and they're just opening way too many doors. Maybe we need to close a few and feel like we've gotten somewhere. There was a great post on Reddit that one of our Clatchers sent. They actually thought it was us for a minute that wrote it. Thank you to Rebecca because we hadn't seen this yet. She sent it to us. Quite obviously, the reason she thought it was us, it ends with, by the way, what's the deal with the lady who took Quentin's blood? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The candy witch that you keep bringing up. But the other part is they named nine major plot points that have been initiated this season. Elliot being stuck inside of the Elliot monster is one. The Elliot monster's journey to reclaim the lost parts and whatever that means. The library's control of magic. Irene McAllister and her issues with the crew, and we have not seen her. No, not yet. All season. Julia figuring out her identity and potentially getting her powers back. Saving Harriet and Victoria from the mirror world. Penny Forty in the underworld. Katie and her new hedge witch possible revolt. And the drama going down in Fillory. And those are really all main storylines. And I feel like Fillory is just building now. You know, we're just starting to get all these different plot points from Fillory. Well, I liked it because it's really being sidebarred. I'm very interested to have it mean something more than just a check-in. But having not resolved these other things, 
uh, the timing, I don't know, maybe the timing's a little off. Yeah. So with all that being said, talk about walking a fine line. Christina and myself always try to walk a fine line of not just being fanboys and girls of the shows that we're podcasting about, being actually honest with our feelings, being critical when we need to be, and being fair. You'll see the rest of this episode, we're going to point out a lot of things we loved about it. But inevitably, when we say anything like this, we're going to get some reviews and some emails of people just mad at us. (laughs) Well, because it's going to be different for everyone. What's one person's favorite episode? Another person says, this felt like filler. And that's okay. Just like you said, I think the important part is to have an honest discussion. It's just our personal opinion. This wasn't an episode we were truly in love with. But then again, there was really fun parts and key moments in this episode that we did like. Oh, and there were other episodes this season that I gave nines to that the reviews weren't as positive or IMDb wasn't as up on. Regardless, though, there is a lot to dissect here, as there always is. So let's start out by talking our new faces and places. We met a character that I actually really did like, and that's Harold the Herald, played by Matthew Kevin Anderson. He works as a secretary slash assistant to the East River Dragon. And I just loved this image of him with 10 different phones going crazy, trying to resolve a crisis. Like a dragon is one of the most powerful creatures in the world. Of course, she's got a herald. Then we met the prophet, or I guess we could say the false prophet, played by Tara Carcian, a fake seer who gets Fen and Margot to do manual labor for her. This was all, of course, in search for Napster, played by Lynn Andrews, a cat-like creature that only appears in dreams and can give you your destiny. So there's another pop culture pun that I did enjoy. Yeah, not only that, but she is another of the questing creatures, or the questing beasts, as they were called in the books. We had at least eight. There's a lot of questionable lists, and I don't exactly remember how many from the books. But the show is definitely doing it differently, or at least some of them are going to stray. For instance, we've gotten the Great Cock and the White Lady in previous seasons. Who's your favorite so far? Of the Questing Beasts? Yeah. I think the White Lady, although the Great Cock was funny. He was awesome. He was definitely... And he was with Elliot, so they bounced off each other very well. Yeah, he was interesting, but she was so visually stunning, I guess is what I liked about her. So was he. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Speaking of magic, yes, we also got the East River Dragon, and we will talk dragons a little bit more later on in our character review section. I love it. Ugh, garbage dragon. (laughs) (laughs) We heard mention of the binder. We're not entirely sure what that is yet. We're going to speculate on it. And the beacon. This was Dean Fogg's (coughs) idea of a magical item they could create to try to save Harriet from the mirror world. That's what Alice was going to do the cooperative spell with her mother to accomplish. Yet another, this seemed to happen in almost all areas, a side quest to the main mirror realm, get Harriet out quest. I'm beginning to see the mirror world as almost a main quest. I know that it does come secondary to the library and is sort of developing Zelda's character, but I also think it's developing Alice's character, and that's why she's kind of been kept a bit separate all season. And I don't mind that. I'm very interested to find out what's going to happen there. Yes, and we may reflect on these couple of episodes at the end of the season and be like, oh, now I get it. And this is the way they're doing what we love, which is juggling all these main characters. Katie was so much of a misnomer that there was three episodes without her. And now it feels like mm, it's starting to gear up. That wave is going more and more towards Katie. And Zelda and Alice. 
Well, yeah, like I said, I do think it's going to make sense eventually. I don't think it's as though the magicians have no idea where they're going with their story. And it does really work for character development. It's just a matter of that thing we said before that you need enough closure on certain areas as you progress. It can't all be left until the season finale. Right. And then you wrap up all 20 mysteries you've been waiting on, you know? In order to simplify our plot and everything that we are talking about, it was broken down into three basic stories. That's how we're going to discuss it. What's happening in Fillory with Fen and Margot? What's happening with the crew on the God Search and with the dragon? And what's happening with Alice and the library? We'll start off in Fillory, where Fen travels through the forest in search of answers to her prophetic dreams, when she realizes Margot is following her. Margot said she realized the dreams and the journey are really all about her, which frustrates Fen, who thought it was her quest. The two engage in a brief power struggle, Fen questioning Margot about Josh, but Margot refusing to let herself be vulnerable. And actually, a clatcher tweeted at us, Rashondal says, why must Fen and Margot be at odds? Haven't they been through enough? I know I have feelings about this, but Jason, what do you think? Well, I think that was the initial setup for the ending of this episode. At that moment, it was a power struggle. Fen all of a sudden seems like Fillory is speaking to her and she has a quest of her own. While Margot's saying, I am Queen Margot. Yes, you were, you have been here ruling in my absence, but this is my quest. It's about me. And I need to be at least be your sidekick. Yeah, if you think about it from Fen's point of view, this is part of what last episode went into with the side effect. Every person feels like they are the center of their own story. Poor Fen was raised in Fillory. This is her land. These humans come from out of nowhere. They take over. She's kind of forced to marry Elliot, and it's not bad, but there's obviously struggles with their relationship. Now she believes Elliot to be dead and gone. She has been ruling the kingdom on her own and seemingly doing an okay job of it. And Margot comes back in and it's sort of like, nah, sweetie, this really isn't about you, though. She finally has the opportunity to go on her own quest. She's all excited about it. Now Margot wants to bum rush that as well. Margot can be a bit abrasive and I think she's over the top because she is so afraid of being emotionally vulnerable right now. She's totally shut down to the idea of nothing's happening between me and Josh. Yeah, and even her puns feel over the top. I think that's on purpose. It just doesn't feel like the slick Margot that we know. But it's really just a setup for us to get in the mindset that Fen may have to take Margot out. Absolutely. Plot-wise. But character-wise, I think it continues to reinforce the idea that no matter what she says, Margot is feeling very lost without Elliot. That's still a wound for her. And I think that's why she's struggling so much about the relationship with Josh, even though she does like him. Nobody's ever going to be Elliot. However, they do kind of work this out pretty well. They come to this unspoken agreement. They're going to travel together. They locate the cottage where they meet the mysterious woman in the hooded cloak, who claims to be a prophet. Margot can immediately discern she is a fake, but Fen is desperate to receive her vision. Thus, she agrees to the woman's tasks. To lay a walkway, rethatch the roof, and plant a garden. For a half a second, I thought, is this the witch? Because the cabin looked kind of familiar. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been a while, right? To get your hopes up. Until she started speaking. (laughs) Now, let me ask you a question. Margot for sure knows right away. She's She's full of shit. She's street smart. (laughs) Why did she go along with these tasks? Why didn't she say anything right away to Fen? She's acquiescing to Fen's journey. This is her way of trying to make right. You know, this is so important to Fen. She's going to just do it anyway. You know, this reminded me a little bit of A Life in the Day. 
And I wonder if that was intentional, A, calling back to Elliot, because that's so much on Margot's mind, but B, how something like that can bring two characters together. I mean, it's a cottage in the middle of the woods. The two of them are dressed in these white outfits that looked very similar to how Quentin and Elliot were dressed at the time. And they're doing manual labor to work on this in order to accomplish their goal. Hmm. Well, in these scenes, Margot's starting to realize how much Fen actually knows. The puns, Napster, Karate Kid. Mm -hmm. I think this was the show trying to, again, build this up, that Fen is more than what Margot thought she was. Yeah, absolutely. And on a funny side note, we said we always wanted to hear about that one epic day she had in New York. Uh Apparently, a lot really did go down. (laughs) Nearing completion of the tasks, Margot has had enough. She pushes the woman into a briar patch that holds her tight and tells Fen it's all been a lie. She's just using them to get her work done. The woman confesses that because she appears near here in dreams, people keep coming to look for her. She's referring to the Napster a questing creature that can only be caught in dreams. So as you say, Margot, realizing she's been underestimating Fen, backs her up and they decide to set out to finish this together. In a dream, Margot decides upon apologizing to Josh, thinking she will marry him someday. Fen realizes it's a lucid dream. She begins chasing the hooded Napster, who unveils and reveals herself as a cat-like creature. Fen admits her trick to remaining asleep that... Margot gave her the idea to take an Ambien. This potion, Ambien. (laughs) So funny. I love that. And Napster divulges that Fen won't like her destiny as it's very hard to change. She could just ask for someone else's future instead. Fen struggles with the thought that Margot might need this more. But when Napster pushes Fen to question if she values herself, she finally decides to take her own destiny. And that really was the pinnacle of their entire struggle this episode. Her coming to that conclusion, as much as she cares about other people and that's for its nature to her, she's going to choose herself for once. Tell me my destiny. Your destiny concerns High King Margot. Seriously? After all that? A moment will come to protect the future of Fillory. A moment to stand beside the High King before all the leaders of your world. I can do that. And then dethrone her. Excuse me? Violently if necessary. Take her crown, Finn. Even if that means drenching it in her blood. That's some Game of Thrones shit. Do you think Napster is a good person or a bad person? I think that historically, both in book and TV, the questing beasts have been kind of neutral. That's what I was assuming as well, at first. But I'm trying to piece this all together. The fact that the talking animals were no longer speaking. We have no reason, as of yet, why. The timing of... Well, we do. We we kind of have the reason why. That it was the allergy to that flower that they think they resolved by... Okay, where did the flower come from? Getting the antidote? We don't know. We had wondered that if it was something to do with the fairy realm. We also have this looming issue that it seems like we're going to get more of soon with Loria and them being at Civil War, and that could play a factor. But regardless, the questing beasts, they didn't really... Yes, they're talking animals, but they didn't fall under that category. They're kind of separate. And the whole point to them is... You have to undergo this epic quest in order to learn something essential about yourself, a base truth. Yeah, I wasn't referring to them as talking animals. I was trying to piece together 
the fact that it has always been known Fillory as a whole, besides lately the speaking animals, had enough with humans coming in and ruling. Who's backing up Margot? What group of Fillorians voted for Margot so overwhelmingly? The speaking animals. So you silence them and you put Fen on a quest to dethrone her. If that's the case, though, I don't think it's Napster who's behind that. Um, I, I would say maybe she's just seeing that truth that's out there in the world okay. right now. I think it's perhaps somebody political. And I go back to Loria because that's just a looming thing that we've been waiting to come back to. We heard that there is a new woman in charge there. And so could be her plot to continue to extend her land, um, to make an alliance with Fillory, perhaps. But she doesn't want to do it with a human leader. Who knows? Yeah, it's just a thought. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's that I don't trust cats. <laughs> well, they, they haven't had a great out for themselves, track always. record on the magicians. So. In life either. Dogs love you. And they're like, oh, give me love, love, love. <laughs> cats are just like, just I need you when I need you, man. Uh, leave me alone. Now you're going to start the war between cat and dog people. <laughs> Listen, we are neutral technically because we're bird people. Yeah. So we're in that whole other weird category. I think that's about all we can say there, though, because it really would just be speculation at this point. We have to see what unfolds. We're going to move on next to our second story, that of the crew. It opens up with the Elliot monster going to Quentin, upset and wondering why his insides feel like they are full of angry ants. Quentin explains that he's going through withdrawal, but won't allow the monster to take more drugs. These Elliot scenes are so funny. They have been for a while now. It's great. Uh, Quentin also drops this, what I thought was going to be a clue. It was very interesting, and then it seemed to be a brush-away line. He says he found a potential lead on Charlemagne's Globus Cruciger. If you look at a picture, I'm sure you'll recognize this. It's known as the Orban Cross. It's been a Christian symbol of authority since the Middle Ages. It's used in iconography, on coins, in royal regalia. The cross represents Christ's dominion over the orb of the world, literally held in the hand of the earthly ruler. If you go even further back to the citizens of the Roman Empire, the globe that was held by the god Jupiter represented the whole universe and the dominion held by the leading emperor. So that seemed to be important, but the monster is very dismissive, saying, Essentially, he doesn't want to hear any more excuses. The mandrake god is dead, so finding his peace should be easy. Q is granted one more day. Though, as there's a man in the TV who deserves his <laughs> wrath. <laughs> oh, I, love I wonder it. who that is. Well, they really did well painting what the monster has been doing while he's been waiting. He's fighting off the urges of this body, plus he's bored. So, an addict and boredom together is not good. And we know that he's been watching TV because there was a few lines there about the TV. This is not Good Morning America or something like that. I, I know. Who do you think it is? It, um infomercial person or maybe someone in good morning america tv shows oh good morning america i gotta know so we sort of had to tie these things in together we had a bit of a convenient line (laughs) that quentin is lamenting to katie he needs to track down an ancient artifact lost to the black market (laughs) and of course katie knows a guy julia isn't happy to find out they're dealing with untrustworthy creepy pete but it turns out Love Lady knows where the item is, in the Horde of the East River Dragon. That scene was really well put together. I liked the way all three of them bounced off of each other. The only thing that got me was, with him showing these possible 
relics. That could be it. He explained the first two. And then the third one, we barely saw a picture for a half a second and there was nothing else said. And that left me thinking during this quest, I don't even know what they're going for. Yeah. I, I, I need to understand more to care a little more. What are they trying to find? It was a lot of quick jumps, I thought. We knew what, what they were trying to find, but the picture before was the piano that was highly haunted. And the thing before, you touch it, it was a stone, you touch it, it does something to you. Yeah, that part of it was good because Pete was almost like a salesman. No, you don't like that. Let me show you this. Right, but now it, the third one, I didn't have a picture in my head. I think that was purposeful because they knew they had to trade with the dragon. And so that was really going to be the main jumping off point. And as I said, I was excited because I heard it's the East River dragon. So I'm willing to go with that. We get this aside right after that conversation where Katie talks to Pete, assuring him that after this, they will be even. But he says she saved his life. So not quite yet. And he's upset at her surprise that he's loyal. After all, he was Marina's right hand man. He says, you've sort of been misjudging me this entire time. And it seems like I was her lieutenant and I can be your lieutenant now because he then pushes her to find out if she's going to step up to help their cause, that of the hedge witches. You ready to graduate from helping your college buds to solving a real crisis? Like what's happening with the hedges? And when a hedge blows up a library branch, shit gets bad. Yeah. Does the library know who did it? No. So we're all terrorists. They're making library cards mandatory, outlawing mm -hmm. spells. You're right. I gotta do something. Turn Whitley in. She did it. She stood here and said she would make them pay for killing her boyfriend. They did kill her boyfriend. They almost killed me. They deserve to pay. She did us a favor. She made life harder for all of us. Look, I'm on, on the library's, library's list. list. So she urges Pete to do it and take the heat off them until they figure out their next move. So they're going to sacrifice a hedge witch? Well, she was the one who did it, and nobody wanted that. She yeah. went rogue on that deal, and so I don't think any of them really feel bad about turning her in. But more importantly, this is exactly what we were saying last episode. Is Katie going to be the new Marina for the Hedge Witches? Yeah, it was a little weird at first that she was kind of like, I don't know anything about this one. She obviously did. I mean, Whitley pretty much told her she wanted to do that, and it was dropped until Pete came to her, and then she's like, oh, yeah, actually, I do know it was Whitley. <laughs> But I think she would be a good ruler. I think she'd be more fair. And I think the hedge witches as a whole, as an army, would be more on the good side, quote unquote. It's just, I think maybe it's that there's nobody left in the hedge witch group for me to really care about. So I'm not as invested in that storyline anymore. When we were so ingrained with that, with Katie and Julia and Marina was the leader, it was like they had to bring back somebody, so they pulled in Pete, but it's still not quite enough. And now they're wanting to do something <clears throat> drastic, which is revolution. So as much as we hate the library, it still feels like anarchy. I can't get on board with them wanting to start a rebellion, and I, and I can't be excited for Katie to lead that. Yeah, because it's still fresh in our minds that they're the bad guys. Mm -hmm. But I do have to say that Love Lady is growing on me. Yeah. I'm liking him more and more. Him on screen is very entertaining. The way he speaks, what he's saying, I want to hear. And I want to see, is he bullshitting? Is he doing this? Is he doing that? I am enjoying his character. Yeah. I think it makes sense for them to slow play it and build up people that we do care about again in that group while also highlighting how much wrong the library is doing. So maybe once it comes to that point, we'll feel justified in Katie leading that charge. 
because <clears throat> the issue is I also still have empathy for the library. As many horrible things as I know they're doing, they're giving us such an intimate look at Zelda, who you can really feel for. I kind of feel for. I, I'm I'm <laughs> torn about her because I do know she thinks she's doing the right thing always. And she bears this heavy weight of responsibility. But they're murdering people at the same time. And they are oppressing others. It's a tough call to make. They must be doing something. They're getting people like Sheila to immediately buy into their message. You don't see there could be good to be done here. You know, then you got Penny Forty now in the underworld preaching. (laughs) This is an important job. They don't know the bigger picture. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I don't. (laughs) Maybe I don't see the bigger picture. Maybe I'm just this ignorant magician who thinks I know best. And we've kind of seen where that gets the magicians into trouble in the past, right? Anyhow, while all of this is happening, Penny 23 is working up the courage to deliver a message from 40. He finally goes and tells Katie. Penny 40, well, he's dead, but he's good. Hmm. And he wants Katie to know he loves her. She's really dissatisfied with this. So 23 goes on to elaborate on the speech, saying she will find her way. She'll move on and be happy. And he's proud of her. I'm really fascinated with this moment. Why do you think he beefed that up in talking to her? Well, I think it's as simple as Penny's a good person. He realizes he needs this crew to be strong. He needs Katie to be whole. And not a fragmented person. And Penny Forty did say, it's up to you. This is your world. It's your destiny. So maybe he's just embracing it. Yeah, I was between those two factors of, well, Penny 23 is just kind of a more sensitive and emotional guy. Um, Or he's really taken it to heart, what Penny Forty said to him. Just as you said, this, this crew has an important mission. Or for a moment I thought... Don't say it. Is this Penny Forty? Oh, no, no, no. No? I could tell. No chance there was a switcheroo in that room? The white room? (sighs) I mean, that would be such a cool twist. That guy was so into it in the underworld because it's actually Penny 23. But why, why would that make him more into it? Well, he's a different dude. I don't know. Maybe there was things that Penny told him that he was on board with. No, I don't think so. I, I mean, just, that would be fun. It's crazy out there, but we've been looking for a way maybe that Penny can come back to us. <laughs> and this just seemed, um, it seemed further than you needed to go. Like somebody who really cared about Katie trying to make her feel better. And it could just be his duty that he feels he, he told Forty he would pass it along and maybe that's all he's doing. I just had to put it out there. Well, the crew makes their way to the East River. Quentin brings the best thing he could find to trade, a human-sized enchanted telescope. But Harold the Herald is busy answering dozens of phones and managing a crisis. Overhearing the problem, Q offers to find what was stolen, the elixir. Sidebar number three. <laughs> Uh, If they can recover it, the Great Lady of the East River will give them whatever they choose, but the thief used an untrackable dart. After a moment's glance, Q confidently proclaims they can do it. He tells the crew the tracking spell failed because they used the wrong circumstances. They didn't know it was from Fillory. This is the Quentin I miss. The one who always seems to be kind of fumbling and insecure, but... God damn it, he knows about Fillory. (laughs) Man, he knows about magic, and when you need him to step up... He just comes out there with some shit like this. And I didn't get to see that, Quentin, for the rest of the episode. Haven't been a lot this season. I was kind of looking for more of that. He heads to the physical cottage next. 
where he finds Poppy hiding out. And she reveals she is majorly pregnant. Physical cottage. <laughs> Are you happy we keep going I back am happy, there? Yeah. Hours later, when Quentin hasn't returned, Julia goes to find him. It turns out Katie had to cast a locator spell as the whole cottage was moved. I wonder why. I think she was trying to hide out so she oh, couldn't be so found. Oh, she moved it? Yeah. Wow. Knowing what she was up to later. And that's why there was no other students there? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's very selfish. Well, it's, uh, it's Poppy, right? I hate her. I really, the more and more, I don't like uh, her. Yeah, I know. This is tricky, too, because she had a lot of these same quirks. And difficulties in the books, but she wasn't quite as grating. And it was more of an independence and an, uh, an absorption in this passion of hers than this self-serving, selfish, reckless nature, I want to say. I, I don't know if I love the translation as much. It's just a little irritating with TV Poppy. And it looks like Poppy's about to pop. <laughs> yeah. This also goes back and forth several times really quickly. She first admits to the group it was her tranquilizer dart, but she denies crossing the dragon. She tells the group the baby is Quentin's. Well, someone stole the dart, she first said. Yes. Yeah. Lie after lie. Mm. But the group realizes the two of them are acting strange. Penny can feel Poppy's hiding something, even behind the mental wards. And Quentin is running around fulfilling her every wish. That was bugging me out at first. I was like, what's going on? Yeah. Then Penny finds the empty bottle of elixir in the trash. And Katie sees a page in the erotic dragon comic book that Poppy herself wrote. So at this point, I was getting angry. It wasn't making sense to me. We have Q doing everything she wishes. And the clues were right there. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is going on? <laughs> but we do find out why. And then it turns out the elixir is dragon juice. You know, the special kind. You mean, as Julia said so eloquently, dragon spooge. Oh, see, I hate all those words. I'm not going to go there. And I, I love Penny's reaction. And, <laughs> and they confront Poppy. She confesses Q is not the father. This time she says she impregnated herself with the dragon sperm so her child could be the first hybrid. So we were right about that bait and switch. It wasn't Quentin's child. Yeah, we sensed that from the beginning. And actually, I was thinking this second explanation could even hold water because poppy is that crazy about dragons that yeah. maybe she did something this nuts i was thinking that'd be a really cool character so i wanted it to yeah. be true <laughs> but it doesn't make sense either because the group says dragons take three years to gestate and poppy only stole the elixir last week at last the full truth comes out poppy is just regular pregnant she's stashed the fertilized egg and the fetus has some sort of built-in protection a pheromone if anyone touches it, it forces them to nurture and keep it safe. That's what's making them act crazy. I don't think they needed all of this quick back and forth. Yeah, that bothered it's me a little bit. Baby, it's his notch. He impregnated this, himself. It's not. It's like, again. No, it's oh, not. Okay. Like, <clears throat> all for it to be a pheromone. We could have just gotten to that point. I love Felicia Day, by the way. <clears throat> by the way, I just hate her character, Poppy. And it's, <clears throat> it was just kind of awkward. This whole sequence until they got to the jokes part. I mean, even with the characters, this person's grabbing the egg. They fall under the spell. Well, don't grab the egg. Well, these two are going to run out. Well, I love the whole Julia. Like, it's too bad. This kind of magic doesn't affect me. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah, we talked about Penny licking the egg. And as things are really getting out of control, Julia taking the egg. And Katie goes with her, ordering the rest not to follow. It seemed like it was going to degenerate into... 
all out chaos because they meet up at the river and they're in a standoff. Quentin's actually taken, who was it, the Herald? No, it, it was Penny. Penny, it, it got it was Penny. crazy. But it's saved because the East River Dragon surfaces. Why the hell is everybody yelling? Oh, I sent them to find your elixir. It is here, oh ancient one, in this egg. It's, um, it's kind of fertilized. What? I'm only 12,422. Too young to be a mother. Wait, how can you hold her like that? Um, here, if you just take it. It's mine. I won it off the Send River Dragon. This is Amelie's egg? Is that good? Well, not for Amelie. <clears throat> in the basket. Thus, Julia lowers it into the river as an offering and they receive the lost item they've been seeking. So that all wraps up really quickly. This was a pretty cool dragon though, huh? For all of the buildup. Well, what I mean by that is this was obviously a dragon that has relations often as being a New York dragon Mm -hmm. with humans, as opposed to some other dragons that we've seen in the past that want nothing to do with humans, doesn't give a shit. This one has the dragon personality where it's about stuff, acquiring stuff, and it's theirs. Mm -hmm. But also, as we learn later on in the episode, it's cognizant of humans and what they're going through. And I'm speaking of Julia and her godlike powers, but also communes often with humans. Yeah, and it's all about her, right? She's like, well, that's Amelie's problem Mm -hmm. that (laughs) my egg, (laughs) bitch. Really, this boils down to two conversations, though, that take place once they're back at the apartment. First, Poppy and Quentin are talking. She tells him she never really wanted to be a mother. Her plan was to give the baby to a couple for adoption. But now she understands, having gone through this experience, and she wants to keep the child. She tells Q he's not the father, and he seems disappointed, actually, sharing that one day he does want kids. Well, he's had kids. In another timeline, yeah. yeah. He's had grandkids. Well, I wonder if he's even thinking about that. Uh, I don't think he's had time to think about himself in a long time. Well, no, just sort of the disappointment. You know, he had that kid who he doesn't get to see anything of. Now, as crazy as all this was, maybe for a brief moment he was a little happy at the idea of being a father again. and Not with Poppy. Ugh. Well, no, <laughs> No, but you could see there was a letdown when she said you're not the father. So when she leaves, I'm like, bye, Felicia. (laughs) Oh, dear. While this is going down in the other room, Julia confides her sadness to Penny, saying she's no longer human, and knowing she'll outlive them all makes her feel alone. Penny says that as a traveler, he feels the same. They're interrupted when Harold brings the box from the dragon, and he passes on a message from her. My mistress wishes you good fortune in recovering your truth. She advises you not to accept your current circumstance. It would be best for you and all of our kind that you make this state you find yourself in temporary. Okay. Your mistress have any advice on how I do that? You must seek the binder. She then went on to explain what that means in elaborate detail. Here's another quest. So, and it's another quest where we won't hear about it for a couple of episodes and we don't understand what it means. But this is what I mean. The dragon noticed something, has a message for her. If only it wasn't so cryptic. Well, I think there's a couple of things to be inferred here. She says, like all of them, 
as though Julia is like the dragons. And then Penny's talking to her about being a traveler. And that's why he can relate to the situation she's going through, that she's so different from everyone else. And we have heard that travelers are, in fact, some kind of creature. So is Julia some kind of creature? Is that a hint about her identity and why she's different and her magic is different? Well, she's just not human. And he's just not fully human either. There's something special. What does that leave, though? It's not only that he's not fully human. We've actually been told verbatim travelers are... Creatures. Creature hybrids, maybe? Demi-creatures. (laughs) Demi-creatures. Now, the other part of that in relation to the binder, Sherry wrote in, wondering about the binder. Is it a person, an animal, a thing? Can it be used to bind the monster Elliot's body too? Elliot Todd replied, someone said this on Reddit. Julia's friends in season one called their book of spells the Spellbinder, and apparently the binder has a voice. IMDb even listed this character for two episodes. So Sherry says that's a good premise. The binder could be a notebook containing important information. I don't know if this is what they're referring to, but in the books, they always talked about the hedge witches keeping a binder at all of their locations. And it was every spell they had managed to track down on their own because they couldn't get an education. They had to piecemeal put their spells together. We saw Julia when she was out on her own kind of searching for stuff online And when you would go to a location, you would have to prove to them the magic you could do. And you would get stars. If you had a spell they'd never heard of before, then they put that in their binder. The bigger one of these locations was, the larger their binder. It was sort of like their cred. Okay. If they had a binder that had spells nobody else had. And that's the first thing that I thought about. I I kind of figured that's what Julia was referencing to when she said the spell binder. Now, is this the same binder? I don't know. How would that help Julia in this quest? Is there a certain spell in there she has to locate, maybe? Or is the binder a person? That's what they were bringing up, too. Yeah, could it be actually somebody who binds? And could that help us later on? I'm not sure. In our last story, we are in Dean Fogg's office, where Zelda tells Alice she needs her exceedingly rare knowledge of the mirror world to save Harriet. Alice is surprised at her fervor because Harriet seemed to undermine everything the library stands for. But Zelda reveals she is her daughter and that when she went into the mirror world to try to save her, she understood all she didn't know. Alice explains when you're in there, there are shards. If someone's in the world long enough, it begins to refract you. Those were just echoes of Harriet. Zelda will need to track down the real Harriet and pull her out. But doing magic in there is extremely dangerous. She knows because when she was a Niffin, she experimented. So that's along the lines of what we were thinking in regards to Alice. But now we know that these weren't monsters in that realm. It is just shards of Harriet. Mm, Scary ones. But why were there not shards of... Victoria? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. I wonder if it's just because she wasn't looking for her. Well, Fogg thinks he might have something to help with this, if Zelda agrees to the terms. To free Sheila afterwards, destroy her book so they can't track her, and give an extra supply of magic rations to break bills. Of course, he's going to get his little part of the bargain in there. His solution is a spell that turns an ordinary object into a beacon. It uses the connections between people. The only person capable of creating this magic is Alice. The way he says it, it's so good. Into a sort of a beacon. And he's so clearly just done with the library. Through this scene and the scenes following, I felt like he was more of the old Penny character, where he was the one stating the obvious of what's going on in the room. We're going to have five seconds. Here is five seconds of actual happiness or whatever it was. 
Yeah, and it almost felt like he knew exactly what was going to happen, and there was just nothing he could do about it. I guess that's typical of the situation he finds himself in. Yeah, he was the social commentary there. It was great. Alice goes to her mother's house seeking help with the cooperative spell. It turns out it requires a mother and daughter. There, Stephanie explains the library helped her redo her father's architectural spells. And there are further signs of the library tracking people. Magical meters that regulate use, placed after the Modesto Act of Terror. How quickly they're rewriting history and people's perception of it and using that as another tool to continue to exert their influence. One of my qualms was the title of this episode, Home Improvement. That's all based on her mother's house is nicer now. No, I mean, it's all about what's actually happening in everybody's home in their backyard, so to speak, that they have to take care of. So really, it's about the relationship mother-daughter between Alice and Stephanie here that needs repairing. And that goes back to the relationship between Zelda and Harriet as mother and daughter. And Poppy as mother. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I dig it. And of course, we did want to see more about this, right? There's always been that tension between Alice and Stephanie. It was kind of obvious that wasn't going to work after five tries. The spell isn't happening. Stephanie's blaming it on Alice's clumsy casting. Alice says it's their lack of connection together, which she feels is her mother's fault. Stephanie actually seems to be pushing Alice out of the house. But then she sees the reason. Carol is there, in disguise again. And we find the library doesn't like Carol much either lately because of her new business, marital aids. Dolls that you can use where your partner feels everything. When the library workers show up, Alice is convinced Stephanie turned her in. She casts her father's purge protocol to lock them out. Outside, the workers label it a hostage situation, and Muhammad deploys the screamers, loud voices that resonate inside their heads. I really like that because they were reading the books that were in the house. That was just a clever, fun way of... But it's just like that annoying, you know that you can't concentrate. It's a good tactic. But Alice presses on and Stephanie finally admits she was actually turning Carol in. Half of her customers have been using the voodoo dolls for revenge on their partners. But this gives Alice an idea. They collect the DNA from the leftover mugs in the sink and they use the dolls against the library workers. While the men are incapacitated on the ground, Carol manages to slip away. Alone now, Alice still can't let this thing go and thinks her mother is actually a bad person. Stephanie lashes out and nearly hits her. That was an incredibly intense moment. I was like, holy shit, this is going to the next level. But she stops herself and has this emotional moment. She confides nothing could make her turn Alice in. In fact, she's all she has. Alice thought after her father's death, she wouldn't be a mother to her anymore, but realizes it's actually been herself resisting the relationship this whole time. And of course, now when they try again, the spell works. (laughs) But of course, when she says that, she says, oh, so you admit it was your fault. Well, she's not going to change her character overnight, right? But I think it was a big step for them in their relationship. It was very telling that she wasn't telling on her with the library. And if you remember how she was with Alice in season one, I mean, she's just always been awful to her. And I think Alice was so close to her father. Maybe on some level, the mother was even jealous of that relationship. So there was never any real chance of them getting to the heart of the matter then. Now they're actually kind of forced to confront each other because they are all they have left. After the spell works, Alice returns with the beacon for Zelda and agrees to hold up her end of the agreement. Alice returns with the beacon to Zelda, who agrees to hold up her end of the agreement. But when Sheila enters, she reveals she has joined the order by choice and is now a junior librarian. 
And on that note. What the fuck did you do to her? Nothing, I promise. What, they forced you? Alice, please just sit down. No! It's everything I ever wanted. Do you know what they do? No, nothing's perfect. People have died. Alice, what you did for me, I will always owe you. But now you should see what I'm working on. Alice, I'm helping people. It's good. And now you're safe too, Alice? As a junior librarian, Sheila's book has been placed in the poison room, where any inconsistencies with your book will remain undetected. So after that scene, I was starting to think, the poison room, who's in the poison room? Well, we think Christopher Plover. This is hard because you would suspect he would be dead by now, but we had talked about how he had those magical wards placed on him by the Beast, Martin Chatwin, to extend his life. So we don't know how strong is that room. Would it counteract those effects? Would he just die a little slower and by the time they get to him he's there? Or is he this almost kind of monster that's deteriorating in there? It's a little crazy to think about. And we know that he's going to be angry with Alice. So if this book is going to be the book that would show Alice's truth. Call her out. Yeah. It would be him that would do it. The thing is, I could see this going in a couple ways. I mean, if he does call her out and he tells Zelda, right? And it turns out Zelda's known all along. doesn't make a difference. Or maybe he thinks he deserves what Alice did to him. Maybe he doesn't seek revenge because he thinks... No, because of what he said to Alice, that we don't deserve to suffer forever. Yeah, I hear that. And it could definitely be a possibility. I guess I'm just a little reluctant to open up any more big bads until we've resolved. Well, I think that'll be next season's big bad. Mm -hmm. We were thinking that before, too. Unless, and I think we had a clatcher say this, that's who Penny greets in the underworld. Yeah, which I think I had never thought about that before and could be a distinct possibility. That's thanks to Tracy, who wrote in with that comment, her and her husband, wondering if it could be Plover having recently been deceased. And she's a new listener, so thank you guys and welcome. Absolutely. Well, that's going to wrap up our plot for this episode, leaving us with quite a few questions. What's going to happen in Fillory? Will Fen actually take over? Will we have a resolve on the monster quest at all this season? Yes. I'm starting to wonder. No, you know how they work. That will be resolved. We might think that it was resolved too quick Mm -hmm. and it was ignored for too long, but it will be resolved. What does the dragon mean by her message? What and where is the binder? Will Alice be able to get Harriet out of the mirror world and what happens to her after that? And will this hedge witch situation turn into all-out revolution on the library by the end of the season? So before we move on to our ratings, we've noticed that our listenership has grown more and more, and we wanted to let you guys know about our Patreon. If you like what we're doing here, we of course have other channels on iTunes and all that. We cover Game of Thrones, which is coming back, Westworld, Mr. Robot, Sherlock, and on and on. But if you want to see another side of us, on our Patreon, you can join tiers. And in those tiers, you have the options of getting three episodes a month. Coffee Break episode, where we talk about shows that we're watching, things in the news and it's very clatcher intensive we have major clatcher questions clatchers write in call in and we have great discussions it's different every month all interactive types of segments then we have our bonus episodes every month which is different again every month where we talk about the brain or we talk about the truth behind christmas i mean there's so many things that we talk about it it's the dichotomy is great and it's really fun we do a lot of research behind that Coming up this month, we'll talk natural health and remedies. And we have little skits in there. 
It's really fun. We're a little more loose. And of course, we also have our movie review where the Clatchers vote on what movie we watch each month. We do notes on it. It's very intensive. And then we do a full review with background knowledge, things just like our shows, but even more in depth. And we cover a whole variety of genres. We do scary, such as A Quiet Place. Of course, we do fantasy and sci-fi. Harry Potter. Sometimes we do throwbacks. Last month we did About Time for our Valentine's Day coverage. Although, of course, that has to also be about time travel because it's CKC. Dramas such as The Favorite. We put up polls so you can vote. If it's at the movie theaters currently, we go see it. Or if there's something we're really excited about, we'll throw it up there, such as Bohemian Rhapsody. There's a huge library for you guys to check out. In fact, there's over three days worth of content there for you guys to gobble up. The important part is, it's not just you guys getting more content. It's also a way for you guys to help us out. Christina and myself sacrifice a lot, a lot of hours, a lot of seeing friends, seeing family to provide these podcasts. But it's also that interactive virtual water cooler we speak about all the time. There is great Clatcher conversation happening over there. We have exclusive chat boards, gear giveaways where you are entered into a raffle and have the opportunity to win a free item of CKC merchandise. Every month two winners. There's a tier that's right for everyone, so why not try it out for a month? Go over to our Patreon page and check it out. Here's one example. For $3 a month, less than a cup of coffee, you're helping Christine and myself out. We have thousands and thousands of listeners here. If everyone joined for $3 a month, we could quit one of our jobs and you guys get more episodes, free gear, and the water cooler only grows. So you can join by going to coffeeclatchcrew.com, clicking on Patreon, take a look at all the tiers, And join. Give it a month. See if you dig it. But if that's not your bag, but you really like what we're doing and you want to help us out, rating and reviewing will always help us out. Following us on our social media helps tremendously. Or you can go to coffeeclatchcrew.com and just donate. Donate a dollar. Donate five dollars. It's a PayPal click. It's simple, it's easy, and it's safe. Thank you for your support. Back to our ratings, each week we rate the episodes on a scale of 1 to 10 rations. Just like magic rations, more is better, less is worse. So Jason, what do you give episode 8? Well, as we said at the top, we had a few issues. We felt like there was so much going on. We were really excited to start figuring out everything we've discussed in the past episodes. And there was new quests. But after we break everything down and we see the meanings behind that, there were so many parts in this episode that I really did enjoy. It was a great episode. So I'm going to grade this based on Magician's episodes, which is a high bar, meaning you're going against yourself the best competition. So for home improvement, I'm going with eight rations. That's 80%. That's still pretty damn good. Yeah, I don't want to reiterate everything that I said at the top. I do feel similar to previous episodes that I can understand the tracks that they're laying, the seeds that might be here for the future, and a way we can tie all this in together. But for right now, I'm feeling a little bit disconnected. And like, I'd appreciate a few more answers. I did like it slightly less than last week's The Side Effect. So I'm going to go with a 7.5 rations. And now let's take a visit to the digital water cooler and ask our Clatchers what they felt about this episode. So it's time to vote. Who is your MVM? On Twitter, we gave a poll at CKC Podcast. Follow us if you haven't yet. We gave you four options. Fen, Alice, Julia, and Stephanie. Coming in at last place, and we figured this much. 9% for Stephanie. What did she do? Well, she just didn't tell on her daughter. (laughs) 
Oh, she made an effort for the first time. Yeah, uh, this is probably a big emotional step for Stephanie Quinn, even though it looks small for us. And we saw how deep-rooted she was with the library at this point. I so it was a bigger deal. And I was just being facetious. Oh, well, I also think they've been drawing clear parallels. Zelda herself has said it before. The relationship with Alice, she feels in a certain way, reminds her of Harriet. I wonder if Alice will start to view it similarly and have a little empathy for Zelda and maybe that's not going to be a good thing in the end. It probably will be empathy for Harriet, not Zelda. In the past, yes, but now having had this revelation about her own mother and maybe what she's gone through, perhaps, you know, Alice will feel a little more for Zelda. She's certainly pissed at her right now because of what happened with Sheila. So we'll see about that. And also, Stephanie did help in finally getting that spell, that beacon spell. But it doesn't hold much weight yet because we haven't seen what it does. But it will eventually. According to Dean Fogg, that's going to unlock the key to them being able to uh, get through the mirror world. So I hope that's coming up soon. Speaking of, coming in third place with 17% is Alice herself. I mean, on top of tackling these emotional issues and having to confront her mother, really deal honestly with a situation that's a hard thing to come to terms with this has actually been my fault for a while now i'm so used to blaming everything on my mother my whole life that i didn't take a step back to look at this more honestly but she's also having to deal with this very intense magic a difficult situation that she doesn't necessarily want to be in she is rightfully afraid of the powers of the mirror world doing it for zelda Somebody she doesn't actually like. So she's advancing our plot quite a bit, I think. And coming in at second place, and these votes will change. The poll is actually still open. As of now, with 36% is Julia. Oh, wow. So this is interesting. When I last looked, Julia was winning by a few percentages over Fen. Yeah, so this might change drastically. There's still 13 hours left. Let's peel back the curtain. We're actually recording this yet again a day early. One of the main reasons we wait one more day normally is because Christina teaches a college course. Not at break pills. That'd be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And not about magic, unfortunately. At night on Thursdays, so we can't record. But this week, she was able to do it with spring break in full gear. So, Julia, well, let's be honest. If we break this down, and I'll, I'll sum it up quickly, we've always spoken about once Julia was becoming a god, I said, we're going to hit a wall. She's going to become too powerful for the writers to be able to write around this all-powerful god where problems actually feel like problems anymore. And we knew that they would eventually take the power away, which they did. Now with Julia trying to find out what's going on this year, and we're finding out she still is a god, she's still very powerful, but they can't give her the almighty power again. We're still finding out that we can use her in different ways. She's impervious to many spells that us regular magicians would have trouble with. In this episode, though, I I was kind of surprised to see she was winning. She essentially stole the egg is really the big... Well, she got it away from the trouble. Yeah, but throughout the rest of the episode... It didn't, she didn't really advance the plot line too much. It was sort of right at the end. She stole the egg and then she got the word from the dragon that she's going to have to go off to find the binder. So to me, it felt like set up for the future yeah. for her that that quest is going to be a little bit more epic. But she did push the story along this episode. And we always impress that the MVM is who pushed the story. Kind of. That's what I mean. To me, it, it felt like she pushed it for the future, not necessarily here. How in would, this episode. How would they have gotten the egg 
back to the dragon. Well, they probably wouldn't have, but that's... It was a very, very small scene within the entire... I see. ...stuff of what was going on with Quentin and Poppy and the dragon and the finding the things to trade for it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think as far as people that moved it more this episode... Definitely, there was the stuff happening in Fillory. And so that takes us to our first place winner with 38%, and that's Fen. I think this is the first time Fen has won the crown. Yeah, I mean, that's great for her. And absolutely, despite being paired with Margot, which is a hard person to go up against when you're trying to get the spotlight, she really did move things forward quite a bit. We uncovered the identity in the end of the Napster. And we got this major prophecy that's going to seemingly change everything happening in Fillory. And we were told about that in the side effect. We just didn't know quite how that was going to be. So now that we know that's true, we're going to have to wait for the other two things we were told in that episode. So Jason, who is your MVM? Well, for those same reasons, I'm going to go with Fen as well. She had some of the funniest moments and she still manages with these new responsibilities and with these new storylines to still feel like Fen. She's unselfish. She seems pure at heart. And the way they dressed her up this episode, she really felt like a main character. Yeah, like she had her own identity. She looked more powerful and confident. Absolutely, not just in her presentation, but her physical appearance as well. I agree, and I am going to give it to Fen for all those reasons too. I obviously don't want to see her dethrone Margo and get into a war, but it certainly advances some interesting plots for the future. Let's see what our Clatchers had to say about it. Well, Sherry agrees with you. She's not sure if she can trust that Napster character, but she thought this episode was strong on many levels. Brian T, to be quite clear, says his first thought was to vote for the Mr. Miyagi lady. I guess we're talking about the prophet here. <laughs> Julia is a close runner-up, helping to unscramble that mess. Wait, Mr. Miyagi lady is not, is the false prophet lady. Yeah. Okay, he's being facetious. <laughs> he's being sarcastic for sure. Fen got her prophecy, but can we trust it? Ended up going with Alice. As random as her journey seems this season, I think self-discovery will pay off. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I find the way they're approaching it random at times, but the underlying story is actually, I think, one of the more consistent and the way it ties in with the library. I haven't been disappointed with that at all. Bert says, I love Margot and really do not want to see Fen drench her in her own blood, but seeing Fen stand up for herself and value herself was refreshing. Also, who played Napster? Was it Cameron Mannheim? Her voice was so familiar. We actually said that during the episode. Yeah, we, we did. I was like, oh my God, is that her? But no, as we said at the top, it was actually voiced by Lynn Andrews. Dijon says, my vote is Fen. It's time for her to take the throne and low-key, high-key, she's been high-king for we don't know how long when Margot was not Margot. True. Loves me some Margot, and it sucks she has to go, but it's time for the era of High King Whoa. Fen. <laughs> wow. True Fen lover. Sherry says, wow, Alice's journey and discovery tonight matches the Fen, Poppy, and Julia reveals. I'm surprised she's so low in the MVM ranking. I know fans are mad at her for betrayal, but who in the group hasn't been guilty of that sometime in the past? Yeah, there's not a lot of love, I think, except for, for me. <laughs> For Alice this season, I'm hoping that this has been a slow progression in her needing to redeem herself, but I feel it's been building all season, just like the rest of her arc. And especially 
pitting her up against the library and just seeing how bad they truly are is putting a lot of things into perspective. So I'm hoping that we like where she winds up at the end of the season. Rashondal says, I chose Julia because at the beginning, she thought she'd be no help to the gang because she couldn't do magic. But it turns out a goddess is helpful even if she can't do magic. So true. That's exactly what we said. Mm-hmm. And Margarita says, I came here ready to vote Quentin because of the Falcor line, but he's not even an option. Yeah. <laughs> oh, poor, we always have. Poor Q. <laughs> yeah. We only have options to do four, and we were thinking about that. It's always a struggle at the end of an episode. But you know what? We were mad at Q, too. And he was a <laughs> bit of a puppet all episode. Yeah. <laughs> poor Quentin. Miss Bacon says, Fen is my choice. In this episode, she showcased an important step towards showing interest in herself for once. Breaking out of her norm to ask for her prophecy, she achieved her own arc, hopefully lasting more than one or two episodes. Agreed. And she ran, agrees with all that, and also says she laughed out loud at the entire thing. On top of everything, Fen was funny, and comic relief was needed after last week, and they managed to move all plot points forward. Also, she notes that Julia has started calling Penny 3 just 23, which we've been doing for quite some time. She says, and he's starting to grow on me. I didn't hate Poppy, but I did feel bad for Q when she asked him about being a dad. I mean, he's been a grandfather. Poor guy. Yeah, I mean, it's just like the last thing Quentin needs in life is somebody like Poppy. I think she's very dangerous for him and always has been. And I don't want to see him get stepped on anymore. So I'm kind of happy that it wasn't his child in the end. Me too. And the Viking says, honorable mention for Poppy, just because Felicia Day is awesome. Good to see her back. Isaiah says, my vote had to go to Alice. As annoying as her character has been recently, honestly, since season two, Olivia Dudley's performance, especially with her facial expression and voice inflections, is always a knockout. Yeah, she is truly fantastic. You guys know how much I love Alice. Should I be allowed or forced to read this comment, you, you Jason? you got to read it. <laughs> Brian S. says, yay, magician's time. Also time for those of us named Brian to tweet responses to this post so we make you read something totally random and totally not helpful. Enjoy! In all seriousness, loved how Fen is really developing as a person this season. Go sidekick characters. But I love that they're embracing our confusion with all the Brians. <laughs> I think we're getting a little better now, though, right? I think so. Well, Tracy, who wrote in about Plover before, had also said, Now that Katie is rallying the hedge witches against the library, if she's successful in cracking their armor, would this push the Underworld Library also at risk? And maybe give the Elliot monster, if he really is Osiris, a chance to take back the Underworld. I had commented that that's a great idea. We are still so confused about the exact relationship and power dynamic between the Underworld and so to speak, upper world branch of the library? Is it even? If not, who's in control of who? If the underworld is indeed more powerful, then maybe not. But I think anything's fair game at this point. Also, along those lines of things we don't totally understand, Bobby G said in the magician's world, do you consider death to be a huge deal? When Quentin and Julia visited the underworld, it kind of wasn't the worst place to live. It was tangible and real, almost like another planet, even with bowling alleys. When Penny Forty died, the other Penny visited him. There are even semi-easy sources of communication. So why should any magician be so scared of death? What is so different than the real world? Hmm. Well, we only saw segments of the underworld, the better parts. And these are only people who are choosing to serve the library, right? So people who don't agree to that, where did they go? We got a hint that there's some other departments that are not as... Fun. Fun as this. Plus... 
you are essentially just serving for the rest of your life. Yeah, I think he's referring to last season when we were in the, I guess you would say like uh, waiting terminal. Yeah, it was almost like purgatory, but yeah. it wasn't negative. It was a holding place until your fate was decided. And remember, not everyone, not everyone has seen that, so they don't know what is the truth. And even knowing that, there would still be things in real life that you would miss and that you wouldn't be willing to give up yet. Mm. But it would be, if I knew that that was there in the, after, in the afterlife and I knew it was real, it would give me a little bit of comfort, especially towards the end of my years, to know what's next. Time to bowl. It's, <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, it's not as scary. And it, for sure, on this show, makes death less permanent and threatening. There's always this thought that characters aren't really being taken from us. We're going to get the opportunity to see them. So thank you for writing in via email. If you want to join that, you can email us, contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com, or if it's easier for you, Twitter, at CKC Podcast. And if you guys could do us a favor when we bring out that poll, if you want to get even more votes, retweet the poll every week and have all your other friends weigh in as well. And we can have a little discussion after every episode. And further... If you want to really be heard, you can call the CKC hotline. And leave us a voicemail. Just call CKC.6606. That's 252-368-6606. And we'll play your message on air, just like this one. Hi, Christina and Jason. My name is Carter. Um, I just found your podcast right before the season of Magicians started. So I've been devouring it like crazy. I love it. Um, There's just a couple of things that I wanted to talk about, about the magicians. I love the theory that the woman in Fenn's dream is actually Jane Chatwin. Uh, We know that Jane was a horomancer. She's, like, built those clocks to keep the time loops going. So maybe, like, giving someone premonitions in their dreams is a horomancy spell that she knows. I think that would be really cool. Books in the world of magicians are so important. Um, The library has everybody's life books. I don't remember if we know who wrote that comic book that Katie finds that has their lives in it after they lost their memory. But the real reason that I bring up books is the world book that Alice is traveling with. I wonder if it also has some kind of future telling abilities. It tells her where she needs to go. And it seems like those places may be places that she needs to be in order to like regain confidence in herself, but also help her friends in their like battle against the library in ways that she doesn't even realize yet. And then finally, um, I wanted to talk about blood, and blood seems to be pretty important through this series, too. There's that special knife that only draws the High King's blood, that witch who took Quentin's blood in the forest. Um, They have to get blood from that stone that will paralyze the Elliot monster. Quentin has to make a blood sacrifice so that God shows up. Um, But this made me think of Shoshana. Uh, who I loved, and I was so sad to see her go. But um, she made a sacrifice. Uh, She sacrificed her life to Julia. But I think that's really important because she had already pledged herself to Julia as, like, a worshiper or an acolyte. And in some myths, um, gods would, like, become more powerful based on how many followers they had or, like, the type of sacrifices that were made in their name. So I think Shoshana giving her life for Julia, the literal goddess that she worshipped, is maybe going to come into play later. I don't know. So I would love to hear what you think. Thank you guys so much. I love your podcast. I'm really looking forward to the rest of the Magicians coverage and upcoming Game of Thrones. (laughs) Um, And congratulations on your engagement. That's super exciting. So thank you guys so much. Have a good day. Bye. 
Wow, thank you, Carter. That was amazing. Yeah, it turns out that that first one, as much as we really wanted it to be Jane Chow, and we find out that so wasn't the case this time around. Although, you know, maybe we could see her at some point in the future. I don't think that she's necessarily off the table. We just saw Christopher Plover come back, so why not, right? Absolutely. And I do think that we haven't seen the end of the world book. There's no way that it just takes Alice to Modesto and then that story's over. But, you know, this is what I mean. There's a lot of balls out there. Yeah. Just so many of them flying around. I can't even keep track of it anymore. Um, the best one I thought, this last conversation about blood, we had spoken of how the ancient Egyptians really originated this idea of blood sacrifice. This all ties back in with the older gods and mythology. So I definitely think that Shoshana's self-sacrifice is going to make a difference once Julia figures out what's at the root of her true identity. We don't know if that's going to mean she's a goddess anymore. If it does, I was just thinking about that today. Not only did gods grow more powerful when they were believed in, but in Greek mythology could actually fade into non-existence if enough people stopped believing in them. So it was a real danger that they needed that in order to exist at all. And that could be a totally separate factor that does come into play. So thank you, Carter, for calling in. That was really fun to listen to. And everyone else, join in on the conversation. We're so glad you like our podcast. And you have a great speaking voice. You want to join the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we'll bring her on sometime. Yeah. That's going to take us over to one of our last segments, our character review for the week. And more like a group of creatures, we're going to talk about dragons Because that's fun, right? And no, not Game of Thrones. Dragons! (laughs) Dragons in the magician's world are immortal creatures that have existed since before human history and are known for possessing great magical knowledge accumulated throughout their time. As a sidebar, we find out for the first time in this episode, 4,000 years old is actually quite young for a dragon, and that gives you an idea of their time span. They are reptilian in appearance, possessing wings capable of flight, and the ability to breathe fire. And a lot of them like water. They like to live under the water. In this world, actually most are water dragons and can be found in rivers and canals around the world. Easy way to hide. (laughs) Though only one in each of the world's major rivers. And you can see why. They're very territorial, very powerful. They are known to collect objects to use for their nests. And I like that in this series. It's not just about hoarding for hoarding's sake. Yeah. It's actually magical items that create power and it's used for their nests. So it serves a purpose. Do you know why they like to be in the water rather than on land? No. Because when they're on land, they're always dragging their feet. Dragging their feet. Oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> well, we hear that they have wings though. Even though we haven't seen that used, I'm wondering if we're going to get to. That would be amazing. This fact that they're water dragons actually makes them more like serpents in this universe than the Game of Thrones variety. They are solitary creatures who rarely break the surface to speak and spend most of their time asleep, although we see that they will barter from time to time. They have their own names, but they're impossible for others to pronounce. This is a big reason why they were just named after the river that they're known for or the canal. Ah. That's why it was so strange that all of a sudden it's like, well, the Sen River Dragon is called Amelie. Because even if she had a name other than the Sen River Dragon, it for sure would not be Amelie. (laughs) It'd be a bunch of random sounds that we don't understand. And finally, dragons are known as gatekeepers due to their ability to open portals. 
as well as the fact that anything a dragon ingests gets transported directly to the underworld. That was our first vision of dragons. Yeah. I didn't know if there was every dragon, I guess so. Uh, No, season three with Poppy on the boat. Trying to get the keys. Oh, so we have a couple of known dragons. And I think this pulls from both the book and the TV world. I'm not sure how each is going to parallel. We have the Thames River dragon, the Venice Canal dragon, the Hudson River and East River dragon. Wait, same dragon or two separate ones? Nope, two different ones. Okay, and we've met both of them. I remember that. Yeah. And they were kind of like interconnected in the books as well. The tunnel dragon was kind of a a mean person. Mm. We hear talk about the Sen dragon this time. The abyss dragon, who we have not heard of yet, and I would love to get that one. And finally, the bookworm, who we did see connects the underworld and the upper world. Yep, we saw them in season three and it was spoken about last episode. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I would love to say tons more and go into the book background. Unfortunately, I don't, even in spoilers, I don't want to go too far into spoilery territory. I think we will see a lot more of dragons to come. And if we do, we'll get further into it at that time. Yeah, we don't want to get reviews calling you the spoiler dragon. (laughs) That's a good nickname. How funny would that be if there was a dragon on this show called Spoiler Dragon and the puns were her spoiling shows yeah, in the past, this pop is culture like, shows. This is like when Penny went to the underworld and they just kept bothering him for Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones yeah. spoilers. <laughs> and speaking of which, the only thing left here is our spoiler section where we talk about next episode. Um, very small amount of information, but if you are afraid of that, we will see you next time when we review episode nine. For those of you still here, speaking about how dragons in this world are more like serpents, episode nine is called the serpent. And we had done some speculating on what that could mean in other sections. We don't get to see any of it on the preview. It's really just focused around Fillory. We see someone talking and I don't think we know who this woman is. Am I correct in that assumption or at least not somebody you recognize? It was very quick, so I didn't recognize it in that scene. It's mostly a voiceover. I'm thinking this could be the ruler of East Loria we've been talking about because she says they're willing to forge a peace with Fillory if Fen takes the throne. And then we see Margot being pulled away. Mm-hmm. Captive. Yeah, and she says a ruler never walks away of her own accord. She must be crushed. Oh. So that would make a lot of sense if this is her and it is going to cause that instability and potential allegiances. Um, Josh is going to get caught in the middle of this. Yeah, now. and things are going to get a little spicy in Fillory. So it looks like Fillory is becoming more and more part of this season. Nobody else is really around to help if no. not Josh. If they get into a tiff and Josh leaves before this all happens, Margot is going to be screwed. Yeah. And of course, our synopsis tells us nothing I think they said let's throw a food thing in every single synopsis because I'm sure Quentin eats a quesadilla is going to have shit to do with shit. (laughs) Yeah, but this next one, Katie and Zelda share a smoke. Mm. The sharing a smoke doesn't mean much to us right now, but Katie and Zelda, I I did not foresee those two names being together. They haven't spent any time together yet this season. I wonder... Oh, because Katie's the head of the Hedge Witches. Well, yeah. Or Ooh, will be. And head. is the smoke really not a smoke? Oh, dragon. Fire, explosions. Serpent. Yeah, there's the... You know, because... 
I don't think it's going to be a friendly. Let's go have no, I smoke a so butt outside <laughs> together. Well, all of that's still to come. And we said both the serpent and the secret sea were things hinted at from the book. So I am actually really excited to see what's going on there. Plus, our writer for next episode is none other than Sarah Gamble herself. We also know that she'll be back for the season finale, episode 13. So that sums up this week's episode. Of course, thank you guys so much for being a part of the crew. Tell your friends about us. Spread the word. And until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. Please hang up and try again.